Amen. I hope my mic was muted because I was singing along, man. Just that's a beautiful song. I don't know about you, but I want to live in the truth. You know, I want to live fully immersed in the truth. I don't want to be deceived. I don't know anyone that wants to be deceived, that chooses to live a lie, that chooses to live a deception. As, as a Christian, I'm convinced that the truth, the ultimate truth is reality as God sets it. I think truth matters. I want to live not being blinded. And, and the truth is that the, the deceiver, the, the word Satan means deceiver. He's a liar. Our enemy is a liar. And he's inundating us every day with lies about who we are, about who God is, about what the world is. And that, that was a beautiful reminder, choir, of who we really are. The truth is that if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then you are a child of God. You've been adopted fully into his family. All the rights of sonship and daughtership are yours now. You are made fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. You call him brother now. That's who you are because of what God's done. What a beautiful reminder. All the lies that you've heard this week about who you are, thank you for setting the record straight. Aaron and musicians and singers, thank you for reminding us of who we truly are. All right, this is it. The last Isaiah sermon. Again, please don't cheer too loudly. <laughs> I had someone this week say, is this the last Isaiah sermon? I said, yeah. And she said, yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, easy. As if COVID hadn't run off enough people. We had to spend a year in Isaiah. <laughs> uh, next year, we're going to be in Paul's letters. Those of you who've been wanting some New Testament grace, some practical application for church, we're going to be in Galatians, Philippians, and 1 Corinthians next year. So three whole books in one year. It's going to be a change of pace. I'm excited about it. Evan's going to kick it off on January 2nd. He's been teaching through Galatians as it is, so he's going to kick off our Galatians series in January. In the meantime, we're going to talk about Advent, an unexpected journey. We're going to talk about the road to Bethlehem on December 5th. I pray that you will invite your neighbors or your friends, maybe who are lost and searching, maybe a coworker, but it's going to be excellent uh, music. Again, this is not just Music is a concert for you to sit and enjoy it. It's a worship service where Christ is exalted through music and where the gospel is clearly presented. So I pray that you will think about who you might invite to come and sit with you and be a part of that special service on December 5th. All right, so these last two chapters in Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66, are God's answer to the prayer that Isaiah prayed at the end of chapter 64. I want to review that prayer. Remember the context of this, right? Isaiah's writing to people who have been through a ton. They've been through a, a really tough season. And some of you, I know, have been through a really tough season. Maybe you have prayed a prayer similar to what Isaiah prays at the end of Isaiah 64 because you don't know what God is up to and why he would allow such suffering to happen. Maybe today you're here and you've had to walk down a road of, of such pain and, and such loss that, that I can't really relate to it. And it makes you question everything. It makes you question God himself. That's okay. That's okay. I'll say it again. That's okay. To question, he's big enough to handle it. 
All this deconstruction talk about young adults, I say go ahead and deconstruct. Yikes. But, big caveat, be sure and reconstruct. Be sure and reconstruct. Build back on a foundation of truth, the gospel truth. Search for yourself. I believe that when you search, Jeremiah says, the Lord says through Jeremiah, when you seek me, you shall find me. I believe that with all my heart. All right, so this answer to Isaiah's prayer, let's look at the prayer itself in Isaiah 64, verses 9 through 12. Isaiah prays, behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. That's also the word for desert. Zion has become a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, the temple where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? He asked honestly. Again, God can handle your questions. Isaiah was not wrong to ask these questions, but if you question God, just brace yourself, okay? This reminds me of Job, right? At the, the end of Job, where Job gives this long kind of, God, where were you? God, why do you allow these things to happen? And God says, you done? Are you through? Okay, I'm gonna speak now and, and, and prepare yourself. He says, gird up your loins, right? He says, prepare yourself. I'm gonna speak from the whirlwind. And God just kind of puts uh, uh, Job in his place, gently, but graciously shows him who he is and who God is. That's kind of what God does here in these two chapters. He blows Isaiah's mind. His answer to Isaiah's prayer is so much greater than what Isaiah wanted or what Isaiah was requesting. It's so much more far-reaching than Isaiah could have ever imagined. And last week, we, we saw how the Lord in these last two chapters is revealing the big picture to Isaiah. He's showing the end of the story of everything ever. And he promised Isaiah a, a great reversal, a great undoing of all the bad stuff that has happened to the world since Genesis 3. God told him he's going to work it all backwards. Remember at the beginning, God created, he, he created humans, he blessed them, they sinned, then he judged sin. And now at the end of Isaiah, last week, we saw that God judges sin. He comes back into the world and says, enough, no more. No more injustice, no more poverty, no more violence, no more bloodshed, enough. He judges the sin, then he blesses his people in a special dwelling, the new heavens and new earth, and then he creates he creates a new world. It's a, it's a complete reversal, the backwards order of God making all things new. And here in the final chapter of this sweeping, majestic book, we get an even fuller picture of the end of the story. You know, in, in the study of literature, uh, scholars use that term denouement. Have you heard of that? It looks like denouement. Uh, denouement means uh, it's the end of the story. The, the Oxford Dictionary defines it as the final part of a play, movie, or narrative in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters are explained or resolved. The literal French word denouement means literally untying of the knot. 
We have a five-year-old in my house who insists on wearing shoes with laces, so we do a lot of untying of the knots. And that's what we see here in Isaiah 66. We're in a bigger story than we could ever imagine. We're in a bigger story than our political affiliation. We're in a bigger story than what the media says. We're in a bigger story than the economy or your career or your family. We're part of a true story, the only true story, that has God himself as the author and the finisher. A story that begins with God creating a new world and ends with him creating a new world. God will make all the wrongs right. He's going to set the record straight. At the end of the story, we know that justice will finally come to the world. Death and sin that have been so destructive and pervasive in our world will be no more. And he will wipe away every tear. I saw one of our members, Stephen McLean, at the Y this week, and he said, man, I love that Revelation 21.4. He'll wipe away every tear, and death shall be no more. I said, yeah, me too, man. He was just quoting scripture right in the middle of the Y. It was great. I loved it. It's a beautiful promise. And, and, and that promise is so important because it's so much bigger than one glad morning I'll fly away and just go to heaven. Many of you know the story behind the hymn, It Is Well. I'll recap it briefly for you. Horatio Spafford in the 1800s, Chicago lawyer. He was an attorney. Uh, Jared, apparently there are some good ones. Uh, John, I know there's some good ones, apparently. Uh, he was very successful, and he invested a lot in real estate in uh, Chicago. 1871, you know what happened in Chicago. There's a great fire. All of his investments were wiped out. That's okay. It's just money. He's a Christian. And then his four-year-old son got sick and died. He was no stranger to loss. And then he was going to go to England with, with Dwight Moody to, to be a part of an evangelistic crusade in England, but he got detained on some last-minute business, and so he had to stay behind. But he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead across the Atlantic, and their boat ran into another boat and, and sunk, and only the wife survived. All four daughters were killed, drowned at sea. And on his way to meet his grieving wife, Horatio Spafford penned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, that's the original one says no, it is well, it is well with my soul. Of course he grieved. Of course he grieved, but he grieved not as those without hope. First Thessalonians says, we grieve not as those without hope. He was confident that all the pain and loss that he'd suffered would prove to reveal a future weight of glory far better than anything he could ask or imagine. The final stanza of that hymn says, and Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, a song in the night, O oh my soul. That's the original poem that he wrote. A song in the night, O oh my soul. He was in the dark night. He was in a dark night. Some of you know what that's like. And he said there's a song in that dark night that the Lord is coming back. That's our hope. 
Our hope is not, again, that we just die and go to heaven. That's not the end of the story because then all the wrongs aren't put right. That means the bad guy gets away with it. That's not justice. That's not a happy ending. A really, truly happy ending is that Jesus is going to come back. That's our greatest comfort in life. The gospel makes all things new. That necessitates a new creation. Jesus is going to finish the work of redemption that he began 2,000 years ago when he breaks into our world again. He comes to rid the world of death and sin forever. Horatio Spafford was waiting for that time with a peace in his heart that enabled him to say, it is well with my soul. He knew Romans 8, the whole chapter really, but verse 18 is, is so poignant. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is what Isaiah is all about. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's where the story is going. So our outline for today is about the end of the story, God untying the knot. At the end of the story, God undoes all those strands. And my prayer is that by looking to the future of what God's going to do, looking beyond this present age, that it will enable us to live with more clarity and more purpose and passion in this present life. So first we're going to see point number one on your outline is that in the end, God will help those who value his word and his ways. God will help those who value his word and his ways. Look at verses one and two in chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, we better listen. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, we, we all have this temptation to reduce God into some package that we can manage. Our, our, our fallen nature kind of craves a system for our religious beliefs that we can manipulate, manipulate and use for our own purposes and advantage. The exiles that Isaiah is writing to have the same temptation. They probably thought, hey, once we get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, it's all gonna be gravy, man. God's gonna love it. He'll be so pleased with his fancy new temple back in Jerusalem that he'll have no choice but to bless us and we're gonna live prosperous, easy lives forever. Isaiah's like, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. God has to correct them and correct us. It's not about our outward worship. It's not about the clothes we wear, the building we meet in. It's not even about attending church. It's not even about giving money to the church. It's about our hearts, the motivations behind why we do what we do. The big picture at the end of Isaiah is that it's all about our hearts. What do we love? Why do we do the things that we do? It says here that God looks to those who are actually humble 
and contrite. That means they understand that they are not okay apart from God. You know, that word, you know, contrite means to be sorry for your sin. You know, there are people who sin boldly and arrogantly, and God's saying to them, you don't get it. Your heart is far from me. But the kinds of people that God sees, that God helps, that God is, is with, and that he aids are the people who are actually convinced that God's ways are best. They, they're the kind of people who read his word and say, yes, that's how I want to live. That's what I want to base my life on. They, they read the, the warnings in scripture and they take them seriously. They actually believe this stuff. And they don't tremble out of some kind of fear that God's going to hurt them if they, they disobey. They tremble, they shudder because they know what life apart from God will be like. Destruction, disaster, a life where sin reigns and leads to devastating consequences. These people don't fear God's word, but one day they will, it says here. Delight in God now, delight in God forever. If you delight in sin now, you will suffer the consequences. Next, we're going to see that God will comfort his people in a, in a surprising kind of way. He comes to us here at the end of the story, point number two, as a loving mother. He comes and comforts us as a loving mother. This is controversial. This is gender talk. Oh, this is what the Bible says. <laughs> Look at verses 10 to 12. Rejoice! with Jerusalem, and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. Morgan was saying that today they had a bunch of babies in the baby class at Sunday school, and she said, oh, I just love those babies so much. She showed me the same picture that McKenna showed me, two of these beautiful babies in the baby class. And the reality here is that God is saying, I'm gonna prepare a place for you that's gonna be so safe, so nurturing, so good that it will be like a mother to you. It's going to be so life-giving, it'll be like a mother comforting you. But then the Lord takes it a step further in verse 13. He says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Here's the deal. My kids love me. My kids trust me. But when they're hurt, when they're upset, they want their mom. They want their mom. You know, I, I do the typical like guy thing a lot of times. If, you know, May has a problem at school, I'm like, well, have you tried this? I try to fix it. You know, I try to say, well, have you tried this? Have you done this? Well, I probably have the answer. Let me help you fix it, right? Morgan just says, come here, come here. And just holds her and just comforts her in a big old snuggle session that does more good for her than all of my ideas on how to fix it. Because what she really wants in that time is her mom to hold her. Sometimes we just need our mom. Morgan is unbelievably nurturing. She's unbelievably gentle. That's why she works in the baby class every week. 
And of course, I try to, you know, solve problems, but the Lord knows what we need. And sometimes we just need our mom. The comfort that God promises us here in the end is infinitely greater than the love of a loving, good, good father, a loving, good, good mother. He offers us a comfort that is better than any of our earthly parents ever could have possibly given us. And what could make a good parent happier than watching their child grow and flourish? Look at verse 14. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. You're gonna flourish and prosper as God's child and God's gonna delight in that. You know, we all have baggage from our parents, no matter how awesome our earthly parents were, but at the end of the story, we see God providing for us all that our earthly parents could never have given us. That brings us to point number three in our outline. We're gonna see here how God will gather his global family into the new creation. Last week, we kind of introduced this idea that some of you really hadn't heard a lot about, or maybe we don't talk enough about, I don't think we do, that the end of the story isn't heaven. The end of the story is the new heaven and new earth. Old earth, old heaven will pass away, and there'll be a new creation, a unified heaven and earth where there is no separation of sacred and secular, but all shall be holy. But first, before that time, there's a great reckoning. I think reckoning and denouement are my two favorite words to, to describe the end times, what God's going to do at the end. A reckoning is defined as a settlement of accounts. It means balancing the books. So that's what happens here in verses 15 to 17. Read these verses. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. The Lord promised never to destroy the world again by water, but he will destroy it with fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the world enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go to go into the gardens following one in the midst eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. These are people who have walked away from God's ways. We know that the food laws were, were not because God doesn't like barbecue. That wasn't the point. The point was to separate his people and make them holy. They, they were known in the ancient world as those people that don't eat pork. <laughs> it was a weird thing, but God did it to make them a set-apart, consecrated people. But these people didn't care. And, and they tried to say, well, I'm right, I'm good, I'm still going to go make my sacrifices, right? They, they tried self-sanctification. They tried self-purification, and it didn't work. It was useless. And Ray Ortland points out in his commentary, you know, Ray Ortland's been like a guide to me throughout this whole, his commentary is so good throughout this whole sermon series. But he says that the one who comes with fire is Jesus himself. This is the Christ figure, the Messiah, who comes to judge the world. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, a billion angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance 
on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, not the law, but the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's clear in scripture. The reality of the reckoning is that some will be cast apart from God forever. The record will be set straight and only Jesus's perfect record will stand. The difference is that we have to embrace his perfect record as our own, which he freely offers to us. That's how we're saved. So finally, after the, the reckoning, God does this amazing global missionary. This is, for those that care about world missions like Dewey Dunn, this is a very exciting passage. He does a, a final missionary movement, starting in verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud. These are far corners who draw the bow, the famous archers of Lud, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. These are priests and Levites were a special class. They were the, the people who ministered before the Lord to the people of Israel. They were directly descended from Aaron. And now God says, I'm going to bring all these foreigners in and I'm going to make them priests. They're going to be some of my exalted ministers in my church. It's going to be amazing. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. God's heart is for the nations. If you don't have a passion for global missions, I want you to spend 10 minutes with Dewey Dunn and I want you to, to hang out with Rachel and go look in her office and see the big world map that's on her wall as she daily prays for the people of Madagascar, for the people around the world to know the truth and the goodness of who God is. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. God is not the God of Middle Tennessee. He's not the God of America. God is a global vision. He is a global God who cares deeply about every nation, tribe, and tongue. I got to attend the International Mission Board's sending celebration this past summer. And it was, I knew it'd be cool, but I, I wasn't prepared for how moving it was actually gonna be. I, I, I wept as these, you know, 66 career new missionaries told briefly their story and their calling. They were walking away from jobs as an orthodontist, walking away from a job as a professor, walking away from a job as a teacher and going to where God was calling them. And several of them had to stand behind a screen where all you saw was their outline because they were going to somewhere that was such a uh, dangerous place to be a Christian that they couldn't even show their face or tell you their real name. 
as we prayed over all of them, and we, we did it by region, as they were sent to Europe and sent to Asia and sent to South America, it was incredible to see where our mission dollars are actually going, sending the, the greatest missionary sending agency in the world with over 3,000 career missionaries on the field right now. Let's play our part in that story. It's the fulfillment of Genesis 12, chapter three, where God tells Abraham, I'm gonna make a special people from your lineage, and through that people, I'm gonna bless the entire world. Remember that? I'm gonna bless in you. He says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, you ready for the last three verses of Isaiah? <laughs> Here we go. I'm kind of sad about it. Verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth, there we go again. I didn't make that up. It's in the Bible. The new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. If I was writing Isaiah, I would stop there. That's an awesome ending. That's beautiful. Time and the new creation is gonna be marked by worship, by the, the weekly Sabbath uh, celebrations, by the monthly new moon celebrations. Those offerings that he talked about before are gonna come to God at the new moon celebrations. Great way to end it, right? That's not where Isaiah ends it. This is how you know that God wrote the Bible and not Nathan, because this is how he ends it. Verse 24, I read this to Morgan, she couldn't believe it. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah ends with a warning. Isaiah loves that verse. He heard it last night too. He said, dead bodies? <laughs> I said, yep, that's how Isaiah ends. He said, oh no. <laughs> you know, I'd rather not talk about hell. It's not fashionable to talk about hell. A lot of churches just don't talk about it, but it's in scripture. Several places, Old Testament, New Testament. The reality is that apart from the grace of the Lord, our sins deserve death. No one chooses hell. John Piper says no one stands on the lake of fire and jumps in. What they want isn't hell, but what they want is sin. And sin has consequences. Sin has inevitable consequences. I don't want to talk about it again, but, but the Bible talks a lot about it. But here's the truth, too. Ray Ortland points out that God didn't prepare hell for you. He didn't prepare it for you and me. He prepared hell for the devil. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What has Jesus prepared for us? John 14, right? I go to prepare a place for you. The choir just sang that in the bridge of that anthem. God's prepared heaven for us, but if we reject it, then he has no choice but to allow us to go our own way and to choose our own direction. Hell is the only possible outcome for people who are determined to stay on the course of self-sanctification and self-purification. So Isaiah concludes with a decision. It's the same decision that's before us today. I was listening to uh, some music when I was writing this sermon, and there was a song, it was a, an indie artist uh, out of California, I won't tell you who, because not, not always great, but 
this, this lady who, brilliant musician, but she's lost and she's searching. And I was listening to the song and, and it had this line in it. It says, I want to believe. Instead, I look at the sky and I feel nothing. You know, I hate to be alone. I want to be wrong. So I looked at the notes on Apple Music, you know, for that song, and, and here's what it said. There's an interview with her, and the artist explains it. She says, I have no faith. That's what the song's about. My friend Harry put it in the best way ever once. He was like, man, sometimes I just wish I could make the Jesus leap, but I can't do it. If I'm being honest, she says, this song is about turning 11 and not getting a letter from Hogwarts just realizing that nobody's going to save me from my life. Nobody's gonna wake me up and be like, hey, just kidding, actually, it's really a lot more special than this, and you're special. No, she says, I'm going to be the way that I am forever. I mean, secretly, she says, I'm still waiting on that letter, which is also that part of the song that I want someone to shake me awake in the middle of the night and be like, come with me. It's actually totally different than you ever thought. That would be sweet, she says. I pray that the Lord will shake this artist awake. I pray that you and I will reach out to those around us who are lost and searching and shake them awake and say, come with me. It's better than you ever imagined. It's better than you ever imagined. Let's take the Jesus leap. Let's go all in on the gospel for the sake of of the Lord and his glory and our flourishing, that's what Isaiah is all about. God saves sinners, that's what Isaiah means. That is good news, news that can change everything if we'll take the Jesus leap together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you sent your servant Isaiah, that you called him, that you showed him a vision in the throne room of heaven of who you are and that he answered the call and said, here am I, send me, and that he saw your glory, that he saw you high and lifted up and heard the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with your glory, O oh God. Lord, we long to see it. We long to see it. But until that time where our faith shall be sight, we walk by faith, believing that we're taking the Jesus leap. We're going all in on Jesus and betting everything on him, trusting that through him, you are working out your good purposes for us and for the world, and that we will see your glory. God, we, we don't know what we're asking for when we pray that you would come quickly. But God, we pray that you would come. We pray that we would be ready, that when you come like a thief in the night, that you won't be against us, but you will come and be for us. That we will say, finally, finally, no more cancer, no more tumors, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more medication, no more waiting on surgeries. No more violence, no more political strife, no more masks, no more vaccines, no more sickness, no more death. God, we long for that day. Help us to remember that 
our hope is not in this life. Our greatest hope is not in heaven even. Our greatest hope is the new heaven and new earth, which you come to prepare for us. Lord, we want to live into that reality now. I pray that you would set that deep hope deep within us, in our soul of souls, that we would long for a country that is better than our own, a far country that you prepare for us. God, I pray for those saints who've gone on to, to glory now. I pray that you would help us to remember that we will be reunited with them in the new heavens and new earth. And that one day, all of our hope, all of our faith will be revealed in your glory to have been right, to have been uh, not a misplaced faith, but a faith that has the outcome of a whole new creation. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your high and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is coming again. Amen. Amen. Uh, I pray that if you have never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you would do so today. You know, time is coming. We don't know. We talked about in our life group today that Jesus may come back before I get in the pulpit. He didn't. I finished. Um, even got, I think, most of it on TV. But, but he could come back before you go home today. Will, will you find him a relief or will you find him to be terrifying? Are you with him? Are you expecting him? Are you wanting him to come back? Or are you in fear of what he'll find? Today is the day to get right with the Lord. We need a sense of urgency, a sense of vitality, a sense of vigilance as uh, Rebecca taught our class today and said that in one of the Harry Potters that the, the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher says, vigilance, constant vigilance. Yes, Christians, let's have constant vigilance of, of when Jesus returns, because that is our hope. Until that day, let's, let's live into the purposes that he's created for us. If you want to join Woodmont and be a member, we believe in membership here. If you want to be a part of what God's doing here, I'll be down front to talk to you. If you want to come pray at the altar because your life's a mess, maybe it's just in shambles right now, and you need to just cry out to the Lord and come kneel at the altar. Maybe your, your passion for world missions is, is starting to fan up, and maybe you're considering going. Maybe God's calling you right now to leave your job behind and to go into the mission field as a career missionary. There's no greater, higher calling vocationally than that. If Whatever it is that you need to do today, I pray that you will not leave this place until you have dealt honestly with the Lord in your heart of hearts. Will you stand and sing our hymn of response?